You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Let's pick up in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 35. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benanoi, or Benani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of, El- of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. <coughs> the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriatharba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So a lot has happened since we first thought Isaac was going to die. We see some deaths occur here. We see essentially just a time of transition. As Moses writes, he knows that he's about to begin to describe in the rest of the book of Genesis the story of Joseph and how God uses Joseph to save the descendants of Abraham. Um, And so there's a transitional piece here with people dying and the promises being passed along. We come to Genesis chapter 36. It says, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And Adar bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Raul, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. The rest of chapter 36 proceeds and talks about uh, descendant after descendant for Esau, kind of the lineage and... Um, family tree of Esau. We're not going to take the time to read through all these names. There's not much said about these names, and so it would simply be uh, time-consuming for us this morning to simply read through hard-pronounced, hard-to-pronounce names. There's not a lot of information given about these people. A lot of commentators want to spend time speculating some things about these people. We're not going to take time to do that this morning either, because I want us to stick to what we do know and what we can know from this passage of Scripture, and I think there's some things that are important for us to reflect upon uh, today. We do have our notes available in the uh, Google Drive folder, so if you want to follow along, I'm going to go ahead and get our notes up for us today on the screen and allow that to lead us right into our summary sentence this morning. So today we're talking about the rise and fall of Edom, or Esau's descendants, um, and we're going to see that in Genesis 35 and 36 here. Uh, our summary sentence for this morning, while the wicked around us may seem to prosper greatly in the midst of our own trials and sufferings, God is always for his people, and we'll show that to be true in the end. While the wicked around us may seem to prosper greatly in the midst of our own trials and sufferings, God is always for his people, and we'll show that to be true in the end. For our kids, in the end, God will punish those who are wicked 
and he will bless those who trust in him. So big picture into the story is that God is always for his people. God always works good for his children. And God will always be against those who don't trust in him. And God will bring his wrath and his judgment and his punishment upon them. But as we wait for the end to come, more often than not, it seems like the, the roles are reversed. A lot of times we look around and we see the wicked prospering. This is a common theme in the book of Psalms. You see what, what seems to be wicked people who are in rebellion against God, and yet they're thriving from an earthly standpoint, from a material standpoint. And oftentimes we hear horror stories of what Christians are going through. So it seems in, in the present time that the roles are reversed. It seems as that God is against his people and for his enemies. We know from Scripture that when it all is said and done, it will clearly be revealed for all eternity that God is always for his people and always against his enemies. In the meantime, though, there are, there are a lot of times where it seems that the roles are reversed. Um, this may be true at work where you see somebody who you work alongside of who is not a believer uh, and yet they seem to uh, be promoted constantly and seem to be given things at work and uh, things seem to go their way. Um, there, there may be people in your family that you see this happening with, uh, people who are not uh, committed to a local church, who don't yield themselves to Christ, and yet they seem to prosper greatly. Um, I often wonder times when I'm uh, following college football why it seems like the, the coaches who proclaim Jesus and are clearly uh, followers of Christ and, and use a lot of their salary money to, to go on mission trips and to take their team on mission trips, why those guys don't win the national championship every year is beyond me. You would think that, that God would honor that commitment, and yet time and time again you see them fall short of their end goal. You look around and you see a lot of times the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, um, and that too is communicated to us in Scripture that we should not be surprised by that. Um, that Christ came and Christ suffered and Christ was rejected and Christ was persecuted. And so as we follow in his footsteps, we should expect to encounter similar circumstances. The comfort and encouragement as always is that God works uh, in negative circumstances for our good. And then big picture, God will always be for his people and will show that to be true in the end. All right, um, the most true way that God deals with uh, both of these types of people. We've already referenced Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things for the good of his children. That's what's most true. So while we may look around and see times of suffering for God's people and uh, could question God's goodness, what's most true when, when you look at the big picture is that God is always for his people and always working for good. And then on the flip side, according to Hebrews chapter 10, what's most true about God's enemies is that he is working against them. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You could also translate that as God's enemies. So people who are exposed to the gospel, who reject it and continue in sin, there's nothing really left for them except for ex an expectation of judgment and fire towards them as God's enemies. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you have a God who is certainly going to bring vengeance upon those who are not his. Um, And that's what's most true, is that God works good for his children and God will work against those who do not trust in him. In the meantime, at times, it looks like the roles are flipped. And and we're gonna unpack this today. So in your notes, the wicked often prosper while the righteous suffer. The wicked often prosper while the righteous suffer. For kids, sometimes good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Oftentimes we see this. Um, As we come to Genesis chapter 35 and 36, we see a lot of prospering for Esau's people. A lot of prospering for Esau's people and a lot of suffering for Jacob's people. It says in Genesis chapter 36, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Remember, Jacob and Esau come back together, and they're reconciling, and Esau says, hey, who do you have with you? And Jacob kind of lines up his family and and says, this is so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and and begins to kind of rattle off his, his family. Remember when uh, Isaac and Ishmael came back together and Ishmael already had like multiple sons and, and, and Isaac was kind of floundering, like waiting for God to, to bring the blessings? It's real similar to what happens here. When you read through the lineage in Genesis chapter 36, Esau is being very fruitful. God is blessing him greatly with descendants. And we're going to see later, those descendants are thriving and prospering and doing so on a much faster scale than this nation of Israel that God is supposed to be building. Right off the bat, Esau and his descendants jump way out ahead of Jacob and his descendants. We see death and suffering and difficulty for Jacob, and everything seems to be working great uh, for Esau. Let's look at Jacob and Esau here both. Jacob suffering and Esau prospering. We see Jacob suffering through some things here at this point in the story. First of all, back in chapter 35, we didn't touch on it last week, but in verse 8, it talks about Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, dying, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. This lady, Deborah, would have potentially been uh, Jacob and Esau's caregiver. This was her nurse. Uh, so Rebecca, you'll remember, she left and moved far away from home, and, and the Bible told us that they sent her nurse with her, or a maid with her. And, and we see this person identified as Deborah here now. Um, we don't know when Deborah met back up with Jacob, because Jacob left by himself when he fled to Laban. Maybe, uh, maybe Rebecca sent Deborah, because remember, she was going to send word when Esau's anger had, had kind of diminished. Maybe Deborah was the one who came with that message and Jacob didn't yield to it right away and Deborah stayed. Or maybe Deborah just met back up with uh, Jacob once he returned to the promised land. Rebecca's dead at this point and so her usefulness in Isaac's household maybe had dwindled as well. And so at some point, Deborah meets back up with Jacob and becomes a servant in his household. And this would have probably been a precious woman to Jacob, somebody who would have been as close to him as his mother 
potentially, someone who would have been their, their nanny, their maid, their, their helper. And so she would have potentially invested a ton in Jacob. So this would have been a, a sad time. And, and I think the value of her is seen in the care that's given to her funeral and to her burial. Um, so Jacob suffers here in the death of, Rebe- of uh, Deborah. Um, the death of Rachel occurs here in Genesis chapter 35, his favored wife. Um, she dies in childbirth, uh, giving birth to Benjamin. You'll remember she had made the exaggerated statement to Jacob that if he didn't give her children, she was going to die. And the irony in that statement is that it's in giving her children, she dies in childbirth. This was a precious woman to him, obviously, his favored wife. And now he'll continue on in his life, continue on in his journey without the woman that he truly loves. He's got these other women in his life that have borne children to him, but his, his companion, his, his, uh, his treasure, his, his wife, his, his true wife um, has, has been taken from him. And so this is a point of grieving for him. At the end of chapter 35, you have the loss of Isaac. And while their relationship had maybe been strained or at least distant because of the fact that he had left home, this certainly would have been a time of grieving for Jacob as well, a time for him and Esau both to meet back up, to bury their father. But maybe one of the more painful things that's found here in Genesis chapter 35 is the actions of Reuben. It says in verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So while he, he loses people in this chapter through death, he also loses a relationship with his son here. Because essentially what Reuben is doing, I don't for a second think that Bilhah was just extremely attractive and that his uh, thirst for lust gave into going and being with his um, father's concubine. This is more a strategic move of authority. Um, to, to lay with your father's concubines was to seize his authority over the family, or at least attempt to. Um, he's also doing this, I think, to potentially prevent Bilhah from assuming the lead wife status. Remember we said that Rachel kind of had the, the, the calendar schedule for how Jacob's time was distributed during the during the week. With her being Rachel's servant, she potentially would have slid into the next valued wife. This would have been his closest connection to the woman that he loved. And so by stealing Bilhah from his dad, he's basically protecting his mom. Leah will assume that um, lead wife authority now. But he's also making a statement that he is saying, I am going to or I want to assume authority over this family. Kind of that grasping for the birthright that we see Jacob doing Um, his son kind of follows in those footsteps. And these have consequences. Um, In Genesis 49, um, which we'll see uh, in the coming months, Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is preparing to to pass away, he pronounces a curse on Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And then in First Chronicles uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we also see the, the long-term consequences of uh, Reuben's actions. It says, The sons of Reuben, uh, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So there's a stripping away of some of his inheritance because of these actions. And these are, 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 this is a heinous act by, um, by Reuben here. This is real similar to what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right, where uh, Paul is having to address a church issue 
where an individual in the church is sleeping with his father's wife. Um, and so it's not tolerated even amongst the pagans, Paul says. And so this was a, a gross act by, um, by Reuben and what he does in the statement that he's making here. So there's a lot of suffering here for Jacob. Death, his sons are acting out and not doing what they should do. And yet what we find on the flip side is that Esau is prospering. He marries and he has children quickly. In fact, if you look at the timeline, when they meet back up, right, and the promise is that there's going to be two nations that came from Rebekah's womb, right? Jacob and Esau would produce their own nations. They show back up late in their life, and Jacob says, here's my boys, and Esau's introducing grandchildren to Jacob at this point. I mean, he's, he's done the whole marry thing. He's done the whole have kids thing. I mean, he's, he's working on grandkids at this point. So Jacob, the chosen one, the one who's supposed to be uh, God's uh, continuation of this nation, struggling and floundering a little bit. Esau is thriving. Esau's thriving. And as we get into chapter 36, if you take the time to read through this, like I said, we won't today for time's sake, If you read through chapter 36, you find that there are chiefs and kings coming out of Esau well before Israel's even thinking about a king. While Israel's down in Egypt because of famine, and then they're slaves to the Egyptians, Edom is raising up chiefs and kings and becoming a great nation. Now think of it in terms of the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. You've got all these promises that have been made to Jacob and his descendants. The older will serve the younger. And yet what seems to be happening is the exact opposite. Is that Jacob and them don't have enough food, so they move down to Egypt and sell themselves into slavery for 400 years where they're just being beaten. And Esau's descendants are thriving I mean, they're just, they're just flourishing, and they've got chiefs and kings. And in fact, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they encounter the Edomites and have to send messages to the king of Edom. There are a bunch of families that, 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 that have a leader in Moses, but certainly no established government yet, no established culture yet. And Esau's people are thriving Despite his sin, God honors his promises to Esau. He becomes a great nation with great wealth. We just read he has to separate from Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of those sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So they can't even choose to live together. It's real similar to Abraham and Lot. We got too much stuff and too many animals to be close together. We're going to have to spread out. God is being very faithful to allow Esau and his wickedness to prosper. So this isn't just Esau being a great businessman. This is God honoring a promise to Esau. He is allowing him to become a great nation. The process is much slower with Jacob, but as we're going to see long-term, it is far greater, right? Just to give you a preview, we can talk about the nation of Israel today and Israelites. We don't talk about the nation of Edom or Edomites, right? You're never going to have to fill out, or if you were to collect... uh, uh, SATs, you're never going to see a bubbled-in section that says, I'm a descendant of the Edomites, right? Like, that's not an ethnicity today. That's not a people group today. That's not a culture today. Those people are wiped out. We've already read about it in Obadiah this morning. They're, they're gone. They've been punished and removed from this earth because of their sin. So while temporarily they prospered greatly and the righteous were suffering, 
Long term, God is always for his people and will always work against his enemies. So the implication for us, if God is willing to bless those who are not his children now, how much more will he bless those who are forever? Okay, so we can look around and, and be maybe a little envious or jealous because a coworker who's not a Christian <coughs> gets the job that we wanted. Or maybe we look around and see somebody who's not a believer, uh, who's living in a, in a far better house than we are. Maybe we have a family member who's, who's not a believer, who has the best cars, and we are constantly having to put our car into the shop. There's all kinds of ways that we can see this and interpret this in our culture, right? Beyond just going off the fact that we don't really understand suffering in light of what many of our brothers and sisters go through today. <coughs> right, we could, we could spend a whole uh, Sunday talking about a proper perspective on suffering, but I don't think it's healthy or, or necessary to completely dismiss what we do experience as, as discomfort here in this culture because our flesh wars against that and, and, and will um, create an a unholy mindset in what we are dealt with here. So we can see the wicked prospering and in our terms suffering here as righteous, okay? Um, but long-term, big picture, God is for his people and against his enemies. If God is willing to bless the wicked now, better job, better house, better car situation, your, uh, your family member who sleeps around and, and is not married and can get pregnant at the drop of a hat, and you're a, 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 a husband and wife who love Jesus and can't seem to have children, right? If you want to compare the blessing of the wicked right now for people that aren't his children, imagine how much greater the blessings are for those that are his children forever. So it's a temporary thing now. Long-term, believers get the much better end of the deal, okay? So we can think in terms of, wow, they're prospering right now. How much more prospering happens for his children over the long haul? All right, number two. God does not overlook the acts of the wicked forever, okay? So in the immediate, it looks like Esau's the prosperer and Jacob is the sufferer, but that's not how it remains. God always sets things right. He does not overlook the acts of the wicked forever. The common grace that's extended to Esau and Edom results in their great condemnation for their sin. So all God does is set the stage for the condemnation that he brings upon Esau because he's taken care of him, because he's provided for him, because he's given him all kinds of opportunities to turn their attention to him. We never see Esau offer uh, or, or construct an altar. We never eat, see Esau drawn to worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have any accounts of him doing this. And yet God has time and time again shown common grace to him, and all it does is set the stage for the great punishment that comes upon him. In the book of Obadiah, as you've already read this morning, the day of the Lord on Edom, it's probably written around the time of the Babylonian invasion. So think Nebuchadnezzar when he comes and begins to steal the Israelites away. I was, um, last night, AJ and Abram and I were talking about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and Nebuchadnezzar and the great statue. And, and that's what's happening here. Okay, so there's an invasion by the Babylonians and they are stealing Israelites away. And the Edomites contribute to this. Okay, so Esau's descendants contribute to this, and that's much of the context of what is happening in the book of Obadiah. So we're going to turn our attention to Obadiah. So if you have your Bibles, 
Go ahead and turn back to that um, book. And we're going to see the sins of Esau's people that ultimately is bringing this oracle of judgment. When we talk about day of the Lord, we're talking about a specific time when God comes into history and acts. And we see little mini day of the Lord's. And you read through the minor prophets and it's day of the Lord on these people and day of the Lord on these people and day of the Lord on these people where God comes into history and brings judgment upon upon a group of people. And we're looking forward to the ultimate day of the Lord when he comes like a thief in the night as we sang about this morning. And he brings full judgment and full restitution upon the wicked and the righteous. Book of Obadiah is the day of the Lord upon Edom. It says, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how, ha- how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not gl- leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have drawn you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. For our kids, God will judge the wicked people in the future forever. God doesn't overlook the acts of the wicked forever. First sin that we're going to highlight here is a sin of pride. (coughs) And for our kids, a good maybe understanding of the term pride here in this context, it's living like you don't need God. Pride is living like you don't need God. And that's certainly where the Edomites had come to. The Edomites had the privilege of living in an area in in this mountain region where it was almost impossible to get to them. It was almost impossible to get to them. The, the, the difficulties in traveling up this mountain remind you of, of some of the journeys that you see in some of the Lord of the Ring movies where, I mean, it's basically like you're just like inching along this road and you could easily topple over. Hard to bring a full army onto this type of road. In fact, it was estimated that at its height, uh, 12 men could have, uh, could have held off an entire army because of how difficult it was to get to the people of Esau. And God says, I'm going to bring it to ruin. You've been prideful about where you live. You've been prideful about the security of creation around you. And I'm about to strip you from everything. Your pride has led you to believe that you don't need God. And I'm about to take every bit of it away from you. Their geographical location had become their security. Well, what does that mean for us today? Well, it's a challenge to us that we don't set anything in our life up as our security in such a way that we start to dismiss our need for God, right? The house that we live in, the bank account that we have secured, the job that we have, the family relationships, all those things that provide security and comfort can never supersede God's need or or our need for God in our life. 
God's our ultimate security. God's our ultimate hope. He's the one that makes promises. He's the one that fulfills promises. To begin to venture away from that perspective is to fall into the line of the Edomites who began to live as though there was no need for God. I meant to put this uh, quote, but I'm going I'm to read it to you. I meant to put it up on the screen. It says, uh, this is a quote by John Stott. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. He's saying we don't ever outgrow our need to fight against pride in our life. Because the more spiritual we become, the, the, the greater we grow spiritually, and the, and the more uh, like Christ we become, the temptation only increases for us to think, I don't need God. I don't need God anymore. I'm doing this on my own. I'm doing this myself. I'm, I'm thriving because of my own abilities. And we begin to dismiss our need for God. He says that we always need to fight against pride, and humility is always our greatest friend. God brings judgment on Esau's descendants because of their great pride. They're not worshiping him. They're not making altars to him. They have rejected him. It's as though he does not exist. Living like you don't need God. Verse 10 of Obadiah. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Number two, the sins of Edom was indifference. Indifference. For our kids, in this context, indifference means they didn't help others in need. They didn't help the others that were in need. Standing aloof, they did nothing to help Israel. When Israel was under attack, they did nothing to help or to assist them. It's the similar mindset of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for what's going on in their life? Why, why should I care what's happening to Israel? We're, we're Edom. We're, we're Esau's descendants. All that we've studied in Genesis ought to connect us here to the fact that these are brothers, right? These are twin brothers and they're relatives. And they see their relatives in pain and suffering and under attack. And they know that these are God's chosen people and they do nothing to help. They do nothing to help. In all of their prosperity, in all of God's blessing towards them, with their kings and their chiefs that you can read about in Genesis 36, there is no help offered to Israel. There is no, uh, there is no extension of armies or kings there, there, there's no salvation provided to Israel through the blessings extended to Esau. Right? They could have easily sent a cavalry in there. They could have easily sent reinforcements. Nothing. You stood aloof. You, you did nothing. You were indifferent. You just stood by and watched it happen. When other people were in need, you did nothing. Right? And, and unless we put ourselves into a different category, James talks about this. Right? When we see other people in need and we fail to do something about it, then, then we're presenting ourselves as unbelievers. We're, we're, we're presenting ourselves as claiming faith with no works that shows that our faith is true and genuine. Edom, Esau, saw people in need, their own brothers, and they did nothing to help them. They were indifferent. And maybe the judgment would, have been, would not have been so severe had it just stated indifference, but in verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast 
in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Their third sin is the gloating sin. For our kids, they celebrated the hurt of others. Now, whether this is actually written before this happens or after, we know this does happen, that they gloated and celebrated in Israel's demise. As the Babylonians are ripping people away and ripping stuff away, they kind of come in behind and scavenge off of that. And they're celebrating the fact that their brother is in turmoil. They're celebrating over the demise of their brother, Jacob. They're gloating about it. They're celebrating it. You know, and I, and I, and I was thinking about personal application for me, and, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to hear about people in turmoil and people in distress. Maybe at work, uh, you start to hear about a coworker who's going through some things, and initially your, your curiosity is spiked. It'll give me some more information, like, tell me what's going on. And, you know, and I challenged myself in my notes, I put, do I desire to know details of the misfortunes of those around me so that I can help them in their need or glory in their misery? Let me say that again. Do I desire to know details of the misfortunes of those around me so that I can help them in their need or glory in their misery? Right? Oftentimes we ask for details about somebody who's going through something. Is it for the purpose of just, hey, give me something to talk about, or do we really desire to help people that are in need? And if it's somebody who's considered an enemy of ours, do we simply want to know more so that we can glory in their misery? That's what's happening here with the Edomites. They are gloating and celebrating and loving the fact that these people are hurting. They love the fact that Israel's not succeeding and that Israel's not prospering. They're celebrating it and they're participating in it now, not from the standpoint of helping because they're indifferent to the help. They're actually participating now and coming alongside and making it worse for Jacob's descendants. And then lastly, number four, the sin of violence. For our kids, they were hurting others. It says in verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Edom contributed to the fall of Israel. Rather than helping, they assisted their enemies. As people were fleeing Israel, looking for hospitality, looking for people to take them in, Edom was turning these people over to Babylon. They were setting traps for those that were fleeing. And they were taking the fugitives and shipping them to Babylon. They were basically assisting Babylon in the destruction of Israel. Israel is suffering. They're indifferent to helping. They're prideful that this could never happen to them. So they're indifferent to helping those that are in need. They don't ever see that they'll have a need that they need someone to come and and assist them with. They're prideful. They're indifferent They gloat and celebrate the demise of others, and then they start to participate in it and make it worse. Back in Numbers chapter 20, so you have the Babylonian situation, but even back in Numbers chapter 20, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt and contacts the king of Edom and says, hey, we need to pass through your your area. We don't mean any harm towards you. We're not going to touch you. In fact, anything that we use, we'll pay for. So if we drink any water, we're going to pay for it. If, If we use any of your resources, we will pay you back for it. Just let us pass through without any issues. King of Edom says, not a chance. 
Not a chance are you people coming through here. If you do, we will attack you with the sword. He says, you're not coming through here. These are their brothers. This is, this is family. And Edom says, not a chance. You are not passing through here. And the Bible says that they went around a different way. They didn't, they didn't push the issue with their brothers. They went around the other way. It's probably important for us to remember when, when we talk about suffering, especially when it comes to God's people and why God took this so seriously, is that God greatly associates himself with his people, especially in their suffering. Remember back in uh, Acts chapter 9, when uh, Saul, who would later become Paul, is persecuting the church, and, and Jesus shows up on that road to Damascus and says, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the church, he says, why are you persecuting me? That ought to bring a lot of comfort to us this morning, is that when God's people are suffering, God feels the suffering right along with us that he associates greatly with us in the midst of our suffering. So for Edom to be indifferent and to gloat and to participate in the demise of Israel, God sees this as a direct attack upon him. He's that closely associated with his people, which again, big picture story, the wicked may prosper, but we have the assurance that we are God's children. He associates with us and he will certainly take care of us over the long haul. So they're cutting off the fugitives and sending them back to Babylon. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Israel, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is God's declaration that the tides will be turned, that the righteous will prosper long term, that they will experience restoration. They will be the ones who prosper, and that Esau and his descendants will come to ruin. The implication for us here, as the ultimate ruler of all nations, God brings to ruin those who oppose his people. God brings to ruin those who oppose his people. The hope for us as Christians today is that triumph is coming. So in our petty sufferings that we experience here, there's hope. There's hope that any injustice done to us today will be rectified in the end. It's also great hope for us as we read about our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing greater injustice from their governments who are punishing them for being Christ followers. We can find comfort because they're part of us. We're part of the universal church. They are part of the great family of God. We can be encouraged as we read these stories. And some of us that get emails from people like Voice of the Martyrs and others who proclaim the, uh, the, the difficulties that believers around the world are going through, we can find comfort and hope in this type of passage where Christ will set all things right and that these nations will be completely done away with because God rules over all nations. He's Lord over all nations. 
It says, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. That's the type of judgment that's coming. So what kind of application does this leave us with? Um, One for our adults, one for our kids. While we wait confidently for God to avenge us through the judgment of our enemies, we are called to lovingly serve our enemies in hopes of rescuing them from that very judgment. For kids, we are called to pray for our enemies so they can be saved. And here's where, here's where the attack on our flesh is. Okay, because we can, we can read this and study this and say, hallelujah, Jesus is going to judge our enemies. He is going to punish them, and he is going to bring vengeance upon them. And we can stand in triumphant glory and, and celebration and say, hallelujah. And there is an element where that should provide hope to us. That in the end, God is going to make all things right. But there's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 7 and 8. This is instructions given to Israel, particularly individual Israelites. It says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. I don't know if that if that's as hard to read for you as it is for me. Because essentially, what that is saying, especially in light of what Obadiah talks about, is that these Edomites are wicked people. They are prideful and indifferent towards helping you. They, in fact, will work against you, and they will hurt you if they have opportunity. And you're not to hate them. Now, there's times when national Israel goes up against the Edomites. There's times when Saul battles them. There's times when David battles them. And it's right. But on an individual basis, in the same way if we were finding ourselves in the midst of the Vietnam War and our nation is battling against them, and perhaps there are Vietnamese people living in our neighborhoods, we don't have the right to treat them with any type of hatred because we're at war with them nationally. It would be the same in the midst of the wars that we found ourselves in in the Middle East. We don't have the right to mistreat an Arab individual because we may be at war with that country that they come from. He says, you're not allowed to abhor an Edomite. You're not allowed to abhor an Egyptian. He says, keep the perspective that these people, even to the third generation, and I think it's a picture of like not just the ones that directly came from Esau, but down the road, these people can be part of the assembly of God. These people can be saved and rescued into the people of God. And that, that's hard for our flesh to hear. Because these passages about God judging our enemies, like we can get behind that, right? Like the Israelites could read about the demise of, of, of Edom and Obadiah and say, about time, about time these people got what was coming to them. Where were they when we were getting hurt and, and beaten up? And where were they when we were coming out of Egypt and they could have helped us and instead they, they made us take the long way to the promised land? But God told him, he said, you're not allowed to hate them. And, that, and that's where the whole idea of we don't seek vengeance, God seeks vengeance comes into play in the New Testament. God says, I'll take care of your enemies. And in the meantime, 
You love them and serve them with the hopes of rescuing them from me having to punish them. That, that's the treatment that we're supposed to give to our enemies, right? Like we find hope in that if they don't ever repent, God will deal with them. So there will never be injustice that takes place forever. God will punish it. But we shouldn't be gloating in the idea of their punishment either, right? Like we don't, we don't glory in our enemies at work or within our families or our neighborhoods. We don't find glory in thinking about they're going to they're gonna be in hell one day and God will pour out his wrath on them. Like if we find glory in that and we find happiness in that, then something has gone awry within us. God says, I'll deal with your enemies. I will avenge them. And so don't you worry about injustice continuing. But in the meantime, you love these people. You love the people in your life that you would consider your enemies. You love them with the hopes of seeing them come to Jesus. You pray for them and you serve them. And we're going to talk more about this in our small groups this week. That's the perspective we have in reconciling with our enemies. We see here in Genesis 35 and 36, Jacob is suffering. Things aren't really going his way. His family's kind of out of sync. Esau over here, this guy's got chiefs and kings coming from him. Things are going great. Long term, we don't know any Edomites today. They're, they're not around anymore. You may have the privilege of knowing somebody that's of Jewish descent. And if not, we certainly know that there are plenty out there. And by God's grace, we've been grafted into that nation. And God has continued to take care of the descendants of Abraham as he promised to do. And there are certainly many that outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. So while temporarily Jacob's suffering and Esau's prospering, long term, the book of Obadiah reminds us, Esau is gone. Jacob continues. God's always for his people. He's always against his enemies. But don't let that be the encouragement part. We should love those enemies in hopes that they too are grafted in just like we have. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to reflect upon uh, these historical accounts of people that have, uh, have gone on long ago. Uh, we thank you for the stories of Jacob and Esau. We thank you that when we look back into thousands of years ago, we see things operating much like they are today. Um, God, we see that for reasons we don't always understand, you allowed the wicked to prosper. Um, and you bring suffering and difficulty into the lives of your children. And God, we know the verses that, that tell us that it's good for us and it, it challenges our faith and strengthens our faith. But God, we also recognize that it's, it's hard to believe those things as we get ready to face another week that, that may cause us to encounter some level of suffering or difficulty or trial. God, I pray that you would just be reminding us constantly of your goodness. And God, help us to see our current situation in light of eternity that while the wicked may be prospering right now and we may be suffering, that this is certainly not how it is for the long haul. And God, we're thankful that you're a God who sees and hears everything. You were a God who saw the, the Edomites not doing what they should have been doing towards their brothers. And God, we're thankful that you brought judgment simply because we're thankful for justice. We certainly don't glory in the the demise of individual human beings who incur your wrath and judgment. But we are very grateful and thankful that you are a God of justice who always brings justice to situations. 
And so God, we look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and, and justice is served throughout all nations. We are thankful that you are a God of all nations who is sovereign over all nations. And so God, we're thankful that there's coming a day where governments that currently punish your people will be themselves punished. But God, I pray that you would guard and protect us from our flesh hearing that and glorying and gloating in the fact that you're gonna judge unbelievers. God, help us to yield to the commands given here in in Deuteronomy where we're not to abhor these people. We're We're to love our enemies as you called us to in the New Testament. We're to serve our enemies and pray for our enemies and hope for our enemies that you won't have to bring that judgment upon them. God, help us to evaluate those people in our life that we would classify as enemies. And help us to evaluate whether we're loving them properly, praying for them appropriately. God, help us to see that they can be spared from that coming judgment just as we were, just as we have been. And that judgment instead can be applied to Christ on the cross. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your forgiveness. We're thankful that people, even for the third generation, can be brought into your assembly. We're thankful that you grafted us as foreigners into your plan as well. Thank you and praise you for Jesus and all he does for us. We pray that as we start this new week, that we would have wisdom and guidance in all that we say and do, that we would represent your kingdom well as we seek to add people to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.